Rescue in Midair by Per Ola and Emily Dolaire. The free-falling skydiver slammed into a fellow jumper at 2,800 metres and was knocked unconscious. Limp as a rag doll, parachute unopened, she plummeted towards the earth. Only a miracle could save her. On a beautiful Good Friday morning, April 7, 1987, a twin beach jump plane, its sardine can interior stripped of seats, droned towards Coolidge, Arizona. Aboard, Debbie Williams, 31, and half a dozen friends talked of the coming Easter weekend boogie, skydivers' lingo for a parachute convention, which had drawn 420 divers from all over the United States. The drop zone at Coolidge Municipal Airport is America's second largest jump spot, renowned for its clear skies and 500 square kilometres of obstacle-free desert. At the beach's controls was its owner, Bill Roth, 36, Debbie's fiancé and veteran of some 300 jumps. Receiving the all-clear, Bill throttled back while Debbie, her jump mate Alex Rodriguez and four others launched themselves into thin air. Arching their backs, arms spread, legs bent up at the knees, the divers turned and swooped like eagles as the air roared by their ears at 190 kilometres an hour. To Debbie, a primary school teacher from Texas, flying her body, the exhilarating sensation of freefall, was the closest thing humanly possible to pure flight. At 750 metres, the divers pulled their ripcords and colourful chutes snapped open, slowing their descent to 15 kilometres an hour. The six guided their parachutes towards the target centre of the drop zone, turned into the wind to slow down, then touched down as lightly as sparrows returning to roost. Inside the huge hangar, filled with other jumpers repacking their parachutes, Debbie and Alex found a spot next to Guy Fitzwater, a painting contractor from California, and three friends. It was Fitzwater's 51st birthday, and he was in high spirits. When Debbie exclaimed, We'd love it if all of you would join Alex and me for a six-way, he enthusiastically agreed. The group made two jumps together that afternoon, joining hands after tumbling from the plane to form a horizontal circle, then cutting away from one another, spreading out in a line and opening their chutes at 750 metres. Everything meshed perfectly. Next morning, they again successfully jumped in formation. Back in the hangar, Debbie had trouble repacking her chute. The lines were snarled. Her problem caught the sharp eye of safety and training advisor Gregory Robertson. Skydiving was the most important thing in the 35-year-old electrical design engineer's life. On my first jump, I was scared out of my mind, he recalls. Instead of arching like I was supposed to, I curled up into the fetal position, screaming with terror. Then my parachute, hooked to a static line from the plane, opened, and all went quiet as I floated gently to earth. Wow, I thought, this is great. Gregory was hooked. Now, with almost 1,500 jumps in his logbook, he was an instructor and a jump master, certified by the U.S. Parachute Association to teach the accelerated freefall, AFF technique, of skydiving. Traditional training requires half a dozen low-altitude static line jumps before a freefall is attempted. AFF students freefall on their first jump. They are accompanied by two jump masters, who, with precise aerodynamic movements of shoulders, arms and legs, remain in physical contact with their sometimes bewildered and frightened students, 
ready to pull a main ripcord or reserve chute should a student become too panicky to do it himself. Gregory had shepherded AFF students to safe landings more than 300 times. But when you're no longer a student, he says, there's no one to help you. Once you're out the door, you're on your own. Now, in the hangar, watching Debbie struggle with her chute, Gregory was concerned. He introduced himself and asked how many jumps she had made. Fifty-five, she replied. Not a lot of experience, he thought. Debbie told Gregory she and Alex were about to do another six-way jump with Guy Fitzwater and the other Californians. Gregory was confident of Guy's skills, but his instructor's instinct told him to keep close tabs on Debbie. The plan was to dive from a DC-4, a four-engine prop plane, at 3,800 metres. Some 90 parachutists were crammed into the fuselage. But the plane's number three engine balked. The jumpers clambered out to await repairs, reloading after 45 minutes. Debbie and her group sat near the cockpit. They would exit last, followed closely by Gregory. As the plane strained skywards, Gregory suggested to the pilot that they compensate for the delay by giving the jumpers an extra 300 metres of altitude, six more seconds of free fall. Sounds good to me, the pilot replied. As it turned out, each extra metre of added altitude would be an unexpected bonus. Gregory carefully separated the groups of divers, spacing each a few seconds apart. Finally, it was time for Debbie's group. Gregory put on his leather helmet and goggles, then yelled, Six way! The Californians exited first, holding hands to form a base of four with which Alex and Debbie would try to dock. Gregory was surprised that Debbie was last. Catching up with the group below would be difficult. She should have been in the base, he thought. Debbie was tracking well, a move that covers horizontal as well as vertical distance. In her red helmet, white t-shirt and jeans, she was quite easy to spot. The other divers wore full jumpsuits, but Debbie compensated for her light weight by wearing clothing that offered less wind resistance. Not bad, Gregory thought, as he watched Debbie from above. Maybe my hunch was wrong. When the first four had jumped from the plane, Guy Fitzwater had been caught in the wash from the DC-4's prop and yanked from his friends, leaving a three-man base. He went into a tracking dive to catch up, but overshot. Meanwhile, Debbie circled the stabilised formation. She doesn't have the proper skills to move straight in and link up, Gregory realised. Her directional control is off. At about 3,000 metres, Alex closed in and docked with the formation. But he was moving too fast and he funnelled the group, turning the stable horizontal circle of divers into a precarious vertical wheel. When that happens, the formation streaks downwards at 265 kilometres an hour until it can stabilise. Guy was stranded 150 metres above the out-of-control circle, with Debbie about six metres above him. Above them all was Gregory. It was a dangerous situation. Two groups of skydivers stacked vertically. If the lower group opened their parachutes and Debbie and Guy barreled into and collapsed the chutes, they might all bounce, a parachutist's euphemism for a fatal fall. Gregory dived towards Debbie, intending to hook up with her and lead her away from potential danger. But as he started his move, both Guy and Debbie began to dive to catch up with the four below. To accelerate, Debbie went into a corkscrew, a fast dive that turned her directly towards Guy and increased her speed way beyond his. 
They're going to collide, Gregory realised. As he watched in disbelief, Debbie's face and chest smacked into Guy's backpack. The right side of her body then snapped round into his left side and leg, knocking him onto his back. The 80-kilometre-an-hour impact was devastating. Debbie bounced away, limp as a ragdoll. At the instant of impact, Guy Fitzwater couldn't imagine what had hit him. Then he saw Debbie, hanging limply, spinning away. Please, God, he prayed, watch out for her. Guy's leg and ribcage were in agonising pain. Knowing he had to get down quickly for medical help, he went into a steep track, keeping the orange-roofed hangar below in sight, then pulled his ripcord at 1,100 metres. Fighting for a soft landing, he flared into the wind just before touchdown, then crumpled on his left knee, its ligaments torn by the collision. Another jumper ran up to him. How's Debbie? Guy called out. Nobody knew. The collision knocked Debbie unconscious and threw her in Gregory's direction. When she crossed under him, some 20 metres below and travelling at about 265 kilometres an hour, he could see that Debbie's face was covered with blood. Looking quickly round to assess the situation, he saw Guy snap back to stability and check his altimeter. He was okay. Gregory was relieved. There was no way he could save both of them. Noting Debbie's position, Gregory went from a flat 190 kilometre an hour fall into a 290 kilometre an hour no-lift dive, facing straight down, toes pointed, arms at his sides, head tucked into his chest, He concentrated on diving as fast as he could. After seconds that seemed like hours, Gregory raised his head to get his bearings, momentarily slowing his speed. Debbie was still accelerating away from him, though not as fast as before. He made a mental picture of where she was, then tucked back into his no-lift dive. Screaming earthwards, making fine-tuned manoeuvres with his shoulders, he streaked towards Debbie like a guided missile. His peripheral vision told him that the horizon was coming up awfully fast and he knew he had just seconds to pull off a rescue, if he could pull it off. Much like Superman without a cape, he pulled to within half a metre of the unconscious Debbie. She was still spinning on her back, but he noticed her right arm coming across her body. Is she subconsciously trying to pull her ripcord or is it the wind, Gregory wondered. No matter, the ground's coming up fast. I've got to pull it for her. He grabbed Debbie's reserve cord, yanked it, then quickly moved away. There's your chance, he yelled, as Debbie's white reserve chute billowed open. At 600 metres, a mere 12 seconds from impact, Gregory opened his own main chute. He had chased the young lady from Texas for 2,100 metres, straight down. The entire action had taken 25 seconds. Debbie was still unconscious and limp in the harness. If she landed the wrong way, her neck could break. Miraculously, she drifted towards the drop zone, her chute trapped into the wind, and she touched down lightly, the chute canopy falling softly over her inert body. Gregory was down as well. He bunched up his chute and sprinted towards Debbie, who lay crumpled on a grass strip not three metres from a bitumen runway and less than 30 metres from the hangar. Medics quickly evacuated her by helicopter to a nearby hospital. Her multiple injuries included a hairline fracture of the base of her skull, concussion, a broken collarbone, eight broken ribs, a bruised right lung, lacerated liver and a bruised kidney. 
After a one and a half hour operation to repair her liver, she was put in the intensive care unit, where her condition remained critical for nine days. On April 21, Guy Fitzwater, his leg in a cast, hobbled into Debbie's hospital room on crutches. We've got to stop bumping into each other like that, he quipped. Debbie was unable to speak, but Guy saw the sparkle in her eyes and knew that the tough little Texan, as he called her, was going to pull through. She is now fully recovered. When news of Gregory Robertson's astonishing feat got out, the press dubbed him Superman and labelled his airborne rescue the Easter Miracle. Awards and congratulations poured in, including a personal letter from President Reagan. But nothing acclaimed what he had done better than the huge poster tacked to the hangar wall on Easter Sunday. It read, In appreciation and recognition of skydiver Gregory Robertson, who saved a life on 18 April 1987. Beneath the 400-plus signatures was this postscript. Good job, Gregory. Embarrassed by all the hoopla, Gregory says, I don't want to be a hero, I just want to be a skydiver. This attitude is reflected in the terse entry scrawled in his logbook after that eventful day. Pulled unconscious girl's ripcord. We both lived. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.